Welcome to Missionary Roundtable with your host, Kale Horvath. Welcome back to Missionary Roundtable, everybody. So glad you could join us again. My name is Kale Horvath. I'm your host. And coming back with you, as always, talking about the Great Commission and foreign missions and the role that we as Christians play in that. We've been discussing many different topics and facets of missions with several missionaries and pastors this summer, and I hope you guys have enjoyed it. Today, we have another awesome guest. His name is James Fife. James was a missionary to Pakistan. Yes, you heard that right. He took his family to Pakistan for four and a half years. He's now currently back in the States after having to leave the country. And we'll, we'll get into that into a minute as to why and how. Uh, but I really just want you guys to get to know James if you don't know him. Um, James, thanks so much for being on the show, man. Yeah, thanks a lot for the invite, Gil. This is exciting. No problem, man. And so I, uh, I met James years ago before he went to Pakistan, but didn't know him, you know, just kind of met him in passing. I met sure. you in passing. I should just talk to you, not the audience. I uh, yeah. met you in passing kind of, it, you know, like our missions conference or mission focus or whatever. Um, yeah. And then you came back and it's kind of funny as Brooke and I were doing the deputation trail kind of overlapped paths as you were checking in with the churches uh, on your way back from Pakistan. So uh, yeah. got to know you a little bit more uh, away from both of our homes. <laughs> right. Yeah, we spent a lot of time together over the past few months. We played a lot of top golf. Yes, <laughs> we did. That that is like the uh, if you're gonna have a missions conference and you need something to do with your missionary, yeah, take them to top golf. Even if you don't right. play golf, it's fun. <laughs> Absolutely, that's the best way to play golf, in my opinion. Same. I'm top not a golf. golfer, but it, it's kind of wow. like bowling. You don't have to be a good bowler to enjoy going bowling. <laughs> yeah, you just eat you food do. and wing the ball. Throw the ball as hard as you can. Right. So trying to hit that little white ball as hard as you can without whiffing and chucking your club. <laughs> right. Oh, man. So, James, uh, like I said, you were a missionary in Pakistan for four and a half years. You uh, didn't originally think you were going to go to Pakistan or even a Muslim country. You you did missions in another part of the world. Um, right. Could you just give us a little bit of your story on how God led you and oriented your life into this path of being a career missionary in a foreign field? Sure. Yeah. So I grew up in a church that was real missions heavy. Our pastor had been a missionary on the field himself. He came back. We had a big missions conference every year. Um, I gave my life to Christ very young. And then also, it you know, it was just ingrained into me from the kind of from kindergarten that the role of a Christian is to get the gospel and make disciples everywhere. And so I kind of thought that that everyone should be a missionary. Even though I was in a big church, I knew a lot of people were there. So well, I had that mission- sounds crazy, James. Okay. <laughs> that sounds crazy. That I everyone should be involved. <laughs> that great commission thing, it's for everybody. Right, that's radical. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'll tone it down. <laughs> I don't want to offend anybody. Sure. <laughs> Maybe we could say that was that was from the, the zeal of a 13-year-old. Okay. <laughs> that's just how I, you know, I just heard God's word and I yeah. believed it. Amen. Uh, so really, that's where missions began in my heart from a very young age. I thought, well, I should be a missionary. Hmm. And uh, that brought about a couple practical things in my life. I went into high school and I realized not everyone in the world speaks English. So I started studying um, Spanish in high school. Mm-hmm. I figured that'll help me be a missionary. Maybe. <laughs> I guess. Did, did growing up in a, in a larger urban setting uh, factor into you like wanting to learn another language, like versus someone small growing up in a small village or city. And they're like, well, nobody speaks another language here. Why would I do that? 
Yeah, I think once I got into high school and really started considering uh, missions, uh, I realized I did have access to a lot of different people groups in my city and even in my high school. So that did help. Uh, once I started studying Spanish as a, as a high school student, I was able to go out and find Spanish speakers and ways to interact with them. Awesome. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I did that through high school and then um, started going on missions trips into Central America, which is a really good place to go because you know for intro missions trips, it's cheap, it's close. Time zones are easy. Sure. Uh, you know, so for a lot of reasons, I think there's a, a good value in going there. And so I did. And, and I started learning about missions. I started learning about culture, seeing it firsthand. I ended up moving to El Salvador. And see, here's the problem. I'm getting older and my wife keeps track of dates. I'm going to tell you 2003 <laughs> and then my wife will listen to this. She'll be like, no, it was 2004. <laughs> right, right. Well, and when you get older as a married couple, that is when you start to argue about dates, right? Yeah. <laughs> Right. Exactly. You know what I'm saying? Um, so, so anyway, early 2000s to mid 2000s. We'll, we'll put it like that. Early okay. 2000s, I moved to El Salvador. How and, long were you there? Uh, worked there for about a year and a half uh-huh. um, with a missionary who was already there, was planting a church, needed some help uh, discipling, just had kind of an explosion of growth, had a lot of young Christians and needed help discipling. So I did that, came back and uh you know, was looking at getting back into Latin America because by then I'd, I'd learned Spanish and I'd been in the culture and I thought, this is what God has for me. And every time I went to Latin America, I would come back and talk to my wife about a potential opportunity to serve somewhere. And she was always like, no, I don't think so. And uh, I was like, oh, okay. And then uh, I ended up meeting a guy by accident who was doing missions work in Pakistan. And we got to talking and the short version is that you know God just really started impressing on my heart that this was what He had been preparing me for, mm-hmm. and I had to really start considering Pakistan. And I thought that was a crazy idea because I had no interest in Pakistan. I didn't know where it was. Didn't know anything about it. Uh, I thought I had a plan, like I can just go back to a Latin country and and that'll be good. Yeah, yeah. Um. Yeah. So I thought that was cool. I'll just go home. And I I thought I had the right answer. I was like, I'll just go home and tell my wife and she'll say, no, that's a dumb idea. And she'll shut it down. Yeah. (laughs) And I don't have to think about it again. So I went and I told my wife the situation and she said, we really should pray about this. Wow. (laughs) I was like, you're a weird lady. (laughs) Oh no. uh, What do I do with this? Right. Uh, So we did, we started praying about it and then uh, over the process of time with the involvement of our pastors and, and the word and, and, uh, a lot of counsel and prayer, God made it clear that he wanted us to go. Mm-hmm. Um, our pastor, Sam, he, he felt all along that going there would, would be a short term thing. We went thinking that somehow we would be able to spend our life on that field and in mm-hmm. that place. Sam said, you'll probably get there. And then make some disciples and get kicked out. That was Sam's <laughs> idea all along. That's funny. It is. In it's retro- just, just that closed country thing of, it, it's really good to like go, well, you should go with the idea that I'm giving my life to this, but then yeah. um, the urgency of knowing a culture like that might not have as much time as I would like to get work done. Yeah. Yeah. So that's it. Exactly. You know, we got there, we had a one-year visa 
And when we reapplied for our visa, uh, we were immediately denied. So we had been there on the field for a year. We were immediately denied a visa. We were allowed to appeal that decision. And they said, within six weeks, we'll give you an answer to your appeal, which means we'll either throw you out of the country immediately because you'll be denied Mm -hmm. or we'll give you another visa. Okay. All right. So we were in that appeal process from February 2016 to July 2019. (laughs) Six months, right? That's six weeks. (laughs) Oh, six weeks. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's six weeks on their timeline. Okay. (laughs) There's there's a bit of culture for you. That's funny. Yeah. So uh, really, you know, what happened was we did, we got to live there for essentially three and a half years without a visa, yet still (laughs) legally in the country since we were in the appeal process. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and it really did create in us an urgency, knowing that at any day they could come and tell us you have to leave the country. Oh, sure. So we woke up every day believing that today could be our last day here and our last chance to minister. So let's make the most of it. Hmm. Which, of course, when you get back down to the basics of scripture is the way we should live anyway. Yeah, amen. <laughs> But it sometimes it takes these odd and hard situations to get us thinking that way. Speaking of, you know, the random thing that we're all living through right now <laughs> kind of exactly. get, gets our attention that we should be more urgent, right? <laughs> oh, man. For, man. Yeah, for real. I'm sure you're seeing it like we are, how it's changing the mindset of our, of our believers. Sure. It's almost like you're saying that the rapture could happen any day. Like, yeah, maybe. <laughs> we always believe that, but then you, you get something that shakes it up and it's like, oh man, I, I need to get back on track. Well, praise the Lord for that. We need, we need to get to that point. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So how did, uh, and so, well, we can get back to this in a second, because obviously you, you did have to leave, but how were you able to be in the country anyway? Certainly Pakistan wouldn't let you in on a missionary visa. Funny thing, Pakistan let us in on a missionary visa. No way. Yeah, man. Wow. So... You know, Pakistan is a relatively young country. They became a nation in 1947. Really? Okay. So they've had a lot of pressure from, you know, the Western world and maybe civil rights groups as they were becoming a nation. So they've worked that into kind of their genesis. They've always had a missionary visa. Okay. They are, of course, the the Islamic Republic of Pakistan. So... Uh, and they do have laws prohibiting all the work that a missionary would, <laughs> a biblical missionary would do. So they have a unique view of that missionary visa. Their their view of the missionary visa is that you can come and do humanitarian work. Mm. And, and bring your Western money with you. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. The money is good. Mm-hmm. All right. So while I had a missionary visa, I also had a job as um, as a nurse. I'm a nurse also mm-hmm. uh, professionally. So I worked in a hospital that was a mission hospital. And that was that was how they saw the fulfillment of our missionary visa. Mm. You provide a service, a humanitarian work to our people. And they knew, it seems like, that the hospital was missionary-led. Because, well, I mean, first of all, there's probably a bunch of white people there. But yeah. uh, but but it wasn't necessarily hidden. Um, but but they were op- probably operating on a give and take, like the government and the, the hospital. Yeah, exactly. That's it. it. It wasn't a secret. They knew it was a mission hospital. It was run by foreign missionaries. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the staff was local. Oh, okay. So there, there actually were the majority of the staff were local, mm-hmm. but yeah, there were still a few of us from the outside. So 
Gotcha. Yeah. So it's an interesting dichotomy mm-hmm. where they say, come in and be a missionary. Just don't be a missionary. <laughs> sure. Sure. Like, we're not going to tell you, you can't come here, but like, don't like do all that stuff you want to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what, what led to, uh, you know, having, having to leave Pakistan then? So obviously you were in a three and a half year limbo of waiting to see, I'm assuming it was just ended up being denied then. Yeah. So eventually uh, the short is yes, it ended up being denied and it, it went down, you know, through those three and a half years, uh, on a few different occasions, we would have uh, various security agencies, like maybe think like their FBI or some sort of investigative police branch that would come to us mm-hmm. with various complaints. They had a, a few specific complaints against me. They came and said, James is evangelizing and James is a spy. <laughs> <laughs> One of those things are true. <laughs> yeah, and I said, "Hey, you got it fifty percent right." <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> and I don't know that either boat is is a good boat to be in in that country. <laughs> um, all right, so then there were accusations, and I mean, it, it wasn't an accusation; it was true. Like they knew I was evangelizing. Sure. I evangelized with patients, and I used that hospital as an opportunity, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to to lead people to the Lord. Yeah. And so that kept coming up. So that was always in the background. Mm -hmm. And then one day, um, the police showed up at the hospital and they said, we're going to take James and two other Americans that they named to jail today. Oh, man. (laughs) Oh, man. Luckily, I was off that day. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) nice. Yeah, I wasn't even at the hospital. I was going to say, did you have to replace your shorts? Or Okay, so you, you weren't there at the moment. <laughs> I wasn't even there. The other two people were females. And so, you know, it, I, I think in, in, the, in the big picture, God protected all of us because what they realized is they can't just take two white females to prison. That looks uh, really bad on the international level. If they would have had a male there, I'm sure they would have had a, a lot more peace, mm-hmm. probably about taking me. But so bad PR God, to take two white ladies. Right. I think God protected all of us. Uh, So I went into the hospital the next day and and my boss said, hey, there's a chance they come to the hospital today and take you to jail. They were here yesterday. I just didn't even know that. (laughs) Thanks. Cool. Maybe I should go home? He's like, no, do your work. (laughs) Okay. What do you mean by that? He's like, no, just, you know, just, you know, tell people about Jesus, do what you would normally do today. (laughs) Which I love. I love his attitude, Mm -hmm. you know? And and then he said, if you go to jail today, I'll go with you. Oh, well, hey, praise the Lord. Not really. I'm still in jail. <laughs> but he's got your back, yeah. Right. Like good company is one thing, but I don't know. The place is still going to be, it's still going to be bad deal. <laughs> sure. They didn't come back that day. They came back a couple of days later with a letter. It said, you have 14 days to leave the country. If we see you on day 15, you'll go to jail then. So okay. we packed up and we were out in 14 days. Gotcha. Yeah. So then you're back in the States, uh, late last year. We fall? got back in, uh, yeah, about the beginning of August. Okay. August of last year. Uh, so you've been back and now I, <clears throat> I do have, uh, some other things I want to talk about as far as, uh, missions and, uh, tips for prospective missionaries and stuff. But while we're on the subject, um, any of us who know or support missionaries to uh, Muslim cultures, Muslim nations, typically we can't talk about that kind of stuff while they're there, obviously, to protect their identity and um, yeah. while they're on the field. But since you're back at the moment and, and you know, I, I'm sure you want to still minister to Muslims in the future. So, you know, feel feel free to redact any of this. But um, if, if you would feel free to just give us some uh, info just on. 
uh, ministering to Muslims in that foreign context. Um, and, and even like that, the, this idea, this nebulous idea of 1040 window missions, you know, maybe mm-hmm. even define what that is for someone who's not understanding what the 1040 window is. Yeah, sure. It's a good question. So the 1040 window was first defined back in about 1990. And it's simply 10 degrees north of the equator to 40 degrees north of the equator on in, in the Eastern Hemisphere. So it's just this block of this chunk of Earth uh, that's mapped out by, you know, latitude lines. Mm-hmm. And um, some missiologists back then were looking at the world and they realized there's a few unique characteristics about that portion of the world. So it's incredibly dense populated uh there's five roughly five billion people live in that 1040 window wow so you know that's two-thirds of our world's population just in the eastern hemisphere yeah yeah wow that's not even including the western side of the 1040 yeah wow that's amazing yeah so basically that's asia northern africa uh, and eastern europe mm-hmm. right that kind of make up that that area of the 1040 window sure and Pakistan, um, which is really interesting, this blew me away when you told me uh, back when we were traveling together. Um, Pakistan is one of the top five or ten uh, largest populations in the world. Yeah, they're number five probably right now. They're about two hundred and fifteen million people. Unreal! I had no idea it was that big. I mean, if you guys are yeah. listening, that's like you know on par with the size of the you know the states are probably three to three hundred to three hundred fifty million people, and you got yeah. over two hundred million people just in Pakistan alone. Right. And so Pakistan as a landmass is about twice the size of California too. Wow. So a lot more densely packed. Yeah. Hmm. Yep. So in that 1040 window, um, you you have lots, I mean, I I believe without looking at a map, India would be somewhere Mm -hmm. in there, right? Or at least part of it. Yeah. All Um, of India and Pakistan kind of right in the middle there. So you do have some other religions, you know, not just Islam, uh, you know, Buddhism and stuff as well. Um, But there's a lot of Muslim nations in that 1040 window. And I, I think a lot of people just tend to think of Islam almost equating that with the 1040 window. So w- what are some just uh, things you could share with us, you know, maybe a story or something just about ministering to Muslims in their culture and in their country? Yeah, sure. So uh, yeah. And a couple of thoughts on the, on the 1040 window that you brought up. So, um, you know, I said there's about 5 billion people. You also have about 3 billion of those people that would be defined as unreached. Wow. So the largest concentration of unreached peoples in the world fall within the 1040 window. Mm. Uh, it, you know, largely unreached people groups. And as you said, it's not just Muslim. There's a little, there's an acronym. Have you heard the FUM acronym? What, what is it? FUM. Like, no. you know, that, yeah. <laughs> what is that acronym? Uh, it, it's, it's the, uh, the people groups or the, the, the religious uh, groups that fall within the 1040 window. So the T is for tribal. So you have uh, animist tribal peoples in the northern African part. Uh, the U, the H is for Hindu. So you have India, of course, that is all Hindu. Uh, so you got about a billion people there. You have the unreligious, largely parts of China uh, that are just secular. You have the Muslims, uh, which are a lot of the countries there. And then you have the Buddhists, which mm-hmm. also you would see in a few of those. Uh, so those are the major religions that make up that part of the world. And Christianity is not on that list. Gotcha. Um, gotcha. Well, and even considering like, you know, I, I know that when kids are thinking about 
are, should I go into missions? Their first question, we've addressed this on other episodes, is where should I go? Maybe that shouldn't be your first question. But when you do get to that question, which is a question you need to get to at some point, um, strategy should come into play. And if that window has most of the world's unreached people, it would make sense that we need some missionaries there. Yeah, absolutely. It absolutely makes sense. And when you look at the current state of missions, we're sending uh, like 1% or even less than 1% of all missionaries into that region. Oh, wow. The majority of missionaries are are going uh, to what we would probably call a, an evangelized world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, so missiologists divide the world in three parts. You have the Christian part, which is about a third of the world's population. Uh, You would have uh, another part that has access to the gospel, but for whatever reason, they've chosen not to follow Christ. Mm -hmm. They have churches, they have Bibles, they even have missionaries. And about 25% of our missionaries go to that world, about 70% to the Christian world. And then that last section would be the unreached world or the, those who, are, who haven't heard. And that's about 29% of the entire world's mm-hmm. population. And actually, we get about 3% of our missionaries there. So what you're saying, and I'm not even saying you're advocating for it, but at least presenting an argument that if you're considering being a missionary, you should consider going to where there's more need or, or, or more unreached people at the very least. Sure. More, more need and fewer uh, missionaries. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I can't help but think that, um, you know, and, and I, it, it, we're not trying to bust anyone of, of their decision and following the Lord and working in ministry, but it seems like back here in the States, we have church plant s- stepping on each other's toes to plant churches in cities. And, and listen, we need to reach the people in our b- own backyard, but we have church plant on church plant on church plant in small towns. And then we have millions of unheard people in one country and nobody going to them. Um, yeah. maybe it's worth considering throwing your life at that, uh, and, and, and praying about it. Oh, absolutely. I think another thing that's strategic about that part of the world is just how densely populated it is. You have most of the world's mega cities in the 1040 window as well. Hmm. So if you're looking at a, a place where you can get around a lot of people and a lot of different people, uh, those are the places you're going to find them most easily. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. So then specifically in your context in, in reaching Pakistanis, um, what's something you can share or maybe even quell any uh, disinformation that people might have about Muslims, you know, in the American world and different uh, things that we might think are misnomers? Uh, what, what was it like actually living among them and, and trying to minister to them? Yeah, I mean, you know, when every, whenever we told people we were moving to Pakistan, everyone had the same immediate thoughts and reactions. Sure, right? sure. Yeah. Like yeah. why? Why? <laughs> Yeah. And everyone has an image of a Pakistani. Uh-huh. You know? Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, and it's not good. <laughs> Probably not, especially with media influence and whether it be social media or TV. Mm-hmm. Right. And we know there's been some some bad things that have happened over there. The most common association with Pakistan might be the Osama bin Laden raid. Mm-hmm. Uh, killing him happened in Pakistan, right? Gotcha. So there's kind of this general idea of Pakistan and, and terrorism that go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say the first thing that I learned when I got there was that Pakistanis are extremely hospitable, not oh, wow. hostile generally. It's a very um, loving kind of family-based, community-based culture. Hmm. Even being an outsider, as soon as I moved in, the, the community that I was in, 
they looked out for us. They mm -hmm. loved us. They were glad to have us there. They wanted me to come in their house and have tea with them. Uh, come meet my children. Come eat with me. Mm. Yeah. So awesome. you know, a lot of people wouldn't expect that. Sure. Sure. And then working within that society. So it, it's kind of interesting because we do generalize, you know, we have a country of 300 million people over 300 million, but then to, if, if someone a foreigner would generalize all of us as being one way, whether it be, you know, like a Southern person or a Midwestern person or what have you, well, that's just not fair. It's a big country. Pakistan's a big country too. And so yeah. to just generalize them all as either, you know, at the worst terrorists or, or at the best, um, you know, whatever their government says that they are, politically um it's it sounds like the general populace is uh at least in a different light if not a lot more kind and generous yeah absolutely yeah you said it perfectly did they, were they interested in having uh spiritual conversations with you absolutely i think that's one thing that maybe people don't realize about muslims generally speaking they're they're very very religious people hmm. right so they like to have spiritual conversations uh, I found it easier to have spiritual conversations there than I do in America, where people generally want to stay away from, uh, you know, topics like money and religion. Mm -hmm. It's wow. just the opposite there. Everybody there wanted to talk to me about religion. So what you would think as an American is if you brought up religion or spirituality or anything over there, the walls would just go up. But they're deeply spiritual people. They just, you know, they don't have the truth of the word of God. Exactly. So they were interested in talking to you about that kind of thing. Oh, yeah, because, you know, they're all Muslims. So they all have mm -hmm. a faith and some of the the core components of their faith overlap with ours. So it's easy to talk about prayer. It's easy to talk about prophets. It's easy to talk about uh, scripture or holy books. Mm -hmm. uh, it's easy even to talk about Jesus mm. because he plays a role in their religion. Of course, that's where the big divergence happens. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's easy to build up to. Uh, the really difficult and important conversations. Yeah. That's cool. Because they would also, uh, they would recognize in their faith a history with uh, Abraham, I believe. Yeah. So you could, there are even uh, mutual talking points that you can, you can build some uh, foundational conversation on. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And generally speaking, uh, I think most people would agree that one of the best ways to engage a Muslim in dialogue is to, build bridges to so start with the common ground. Mm -hmm. right? So you don't want to go in there and start with Jesus as the son of God. Mm. That's just going to create a division. It's going to create an argument. It's going to create a fight. You that will make the walls go up immediately. Oh, exactly. Sure. Yeah. But if you want to start by talking about Abraham, well, you could, you could talk to him all morning about Abraham hmm. and all the prophets. Yeah. Now you'll find that of course there's differences in uh, the history or in the stories that we would tell. Mm. And one of the keys to evangelizing and, and keeping dialogue going with a Muslim is being able to stay focused on the most important thing. All right. So, so you can easily get distracted. If I were to have a conversation with a Muslim and we were to talk about Abraham offering his son as a sacrifice in obedience to God, I would talk about how he, you know, took Isaac uh, to offer as a sacrifice. And they would say, hold up, that's not right. Actually, Abraham took Ishmael to offer as a sacrifice. Oh. Okay? So there's a, a big and clear difference, mm -hmm. right? But if I spend my time trying to rectify that difference, it gains me no ground in accomplishing my actual goal. Mm. 
right? Because when you look at that story, the thing that is most important is that there is a, a substitutional atonement that happens in that story. Mm. Okay, call it call it Ishmael or call it Isaac. We know what's true, but here's what I can do. You call it Ishmael, I can still preach the gospel out of that. Mm. And so that's where, as being new in that country, that's where I think uh, I had some of my more difficult conversations and 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 learned kind of that trial by fire is getting off on the on the wrong conversation. Interesting. So rather than focusing on things that uh, maybe in our youthfulness we think are really important, find the common ground and get to the really key importance is that Jesus is the Son of God. And I mean, don't start with that, but that's mm-hmm. that's what you're building to it, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, redemption should always be the focus. How do we get to a conversation about redemption? Mm. Well, you have that in Abraham's sacrifice. Isaac or Ishmael is is a minor detail if we're trying to just tell the story of redemption. Sure, because they their holy book says it's Ishmael. Yeah. And your holy book says it's Isaac. Now, we, you know, obviously all those things aside, but just from their perspective— you could argue all day about which holy book is the right holy book, or like you said, we could talk about redemption. Yeah. And then get back to that after the important. Right. Part. Because, you know, and when you when you take that other approach, it does put up that wall, but it also uh attacks their holy book. It attacks the their prophet and in in turn that attacks them personally and very deeply. Uh so you could potentially ruin other subsequent conversations on the first one. And if, you know, if anyone's looked at evangelism, uh, you know, or, or learned it from, you know, a Brian Clark model, the key is having more and more conversations. You don't want just one. We want, we want to keep having conversations. Oh yeah, absolutely. Brian's absolutely right about that. And probably any people group, any, uh, you know, religious group in the world, if you can get more conversations, mm-hmm. you're more likely to get a disciple out of it. And especially in a Muslim context, I, I don't remember the number, but I feel like there, there's a number that's commonly associated with how many times a Muslim needs to be witnessed to or hear the gospel before they typically get saved. Yeah, the number I've heard is 200. Oh, gosh. Yeah. I was thinking it was like 10. <laughs> that's probably an American. <laughs> yeah. That's, wow. That's, that's our hope. <laughs> so there needs to be persistence and there needs to be a strategy of trying to continue to have conversations with these people. Exactly. Yeah. Somebody told us once that it's easy to lead a Muslim to the Lord. You just have to have 200 gospel conversations with them. <laughs> Are you willing to do that? Right. Yeah, that's I'm awesome. Sure. Man, praise the Lord for that. And and, and even uh, the short time, you know, in five years isn't short by any means, but shorter than you wanted. Uh, even yeah. in that time, uh, you were able to be effective and witness to those people. Now let's let's uh, kind of turn our conversation towards the, the theme of uh, language learning. Now, I I mean, I feel like you would wholeheartedly believe that language learning, even practically, is important if you're going to be a missionary because it's hard to get things done. But what would you say, in your opinion, how important is learning the language of a people to connecting to their culture? Obviously, pragmatically, it helps you get around and buy groceries. But if you're going to connect to someone's culture, how important is the key of language learning? Oh, 100%. You have to learn language to really get connected to culture. I think language is the single largest component of a culture, right? It's the first thing that binds us together mm-hmm. or separates us. It's it's that natural boundary in within which we can create culture. You and I share culture because we share language. 
Sure. So even like uh, political references, uh, cultural references, idioms all stem from shared uh, experiences or memories, right? Yeah. So then if you, if you give effort to learning the language of the people you're learning, you're going, or the people you're trying to reach, you're going to learn those things as you learn the language. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as you start to learn language and once you really start to learn language to where you can understand, uh, jokes Mm -hmm. and, you know, uh, puns and inference, once you pick those things up, then you start to pick up on on the hidden meanings that are there and the undercurrents of a, of a culture, that's when you really start to figure out what's inside the heart of these people, mm-hmm. not just the words that are coming out. So you sure. absolutely have to have language to get that. And so you, you learned Spanish uh, at a younger age and, and went to El Salvador and then you learned, is it Urdu? Is that correct in Pakistan? Got it. Um, so you speak three languages. Yeah. How important, so kind of stemming back to the last question, how important is it in order to minister and have influence? Obviously it's important to learn in culture, but how important is it for your ministry and influencing people for the gospel uh, to learn the language? Uh, it's critically important. When you think about what the Great Commission is, it's make disciples, right? Mm-hmm. And when you think about what discipleship is, if you just you know try to maybe strip it down and make it real simple, it, Jesus spent three years living and sharing life with some other men. Well, you got to have language to do that. Mm. You absolutely cannot make disciples without language because um, you can't get to their heart. Mm. You can't get to real issues. Yeah. Deep language is necessary for that. You you can get quite a ways with a translator. Mm -hmm. You can do a lot of work, especially evangelistic work with a translator. But uh, if, if I want you to tell me about your struggles as a father or your struggles in sin or whatever it is. And I've got some guy from, from your community sitting mm-hmm. here having to be the intermediary for us. Mm. You're probably not going to do it. Not because you don't trust me, but mostly because you don't trust him. Mm. You're going to tell all your secrets to this guy who's going to mm-hmm. pass it on to me so I can counsel you. And then he's going to take that out to the community. Yeah. It's, it's not as intimate. It's not a one-on-one yeah. Relation. Wow, that's interesting. I never even thought about that facet. You're absolutely right. Because even like when we do camps in Hungary, typically we're using translators. But like you said, it's it's at that baseline, get to know you and share the gospel with you level. But man, anything further than that would be would be tough to build upon um, through an intermediary. And and really, it it is easier. I feel like so for missionaries who go to other countries, um, doesn't matter what kind of third world country you might go to. In the big city, there's English nowadays. You know, between yeah. the internet and media, and uh, it's just an international language. And so I feel like there there could be a temptation or even an argument, per- perhaps in some missionaries' minds, of I don't need to learn English. I can minister, or I don't need to learn the language. I can minister in English, uh, right here where I'm at. Why why should I learn the language? Um, well, because the argument breaks down there because you're, then you're saying that person has to learn a language. Hmm. That's not fair. Sure. You're going to reach them and your expectation is that they come to you. <laughs> but you what come if to me in language and then I'll, then I'll minister to you. Sure. But what if there's some people, you know, a minority of course, who do speak English or, you know, English as a second or third or fourth language, yeah. uh, do, at the very least, does it just limit your sphere of influence then? 
Yeah, absolutely. If you don't have the local language, it's going to limit your sphere of influence. And you will, of course, everywhere in the world, you will find places where you can probably make disciples in English mm-hmm. in just about any country. Uh, even there, you know, in Pakistan, the first few people that I interacted with closely was in English because mm-hmm. I was trying to learn the language. Yeah. And there were people there who spoke uh, very good English and understood the heart of what was coming out. Yeah. So but if, that's not all of them. It's few. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So if you, so I guess what I'm saying is depending on where you go, if there's more English speakers in that big city, there could be a real temptation for you if you're not committed on the front end to learning that language. There could be a temptation to not put forth as much effort to learn it as quickly or rely on the translator or rely on people speaking your language. And so do you think there needs to be that commitment on the front end that no, regardless, I'm, I'm going to learn this language? Yeah, I do think so. Absolutely. Especially if you're planning on buying a field, investing, mm-hmm. uh, spending a lifetime there. Sure. If you know you're there, maybe short term, uh, you're on a, a, a two week, a two month trip, you can get by with English, right? Sure. But if you say, I'm going to buy this field, you need to get that language. So when we went, um, our first our first job for a year and a half almost was only language learning, culture, make friends. Mm-hmm. I didn't go to the hospital. I didn't have any other responsibility. Mm-hmm. We had a tutor come to our house. We studied language every day. Mm-hmm. Every afternoon I went out to the market and I've met young guys and tried to practice. <laughs> That's now in, so in the practical sphere of learning a language, so you've, you've learned two other foreign languages. Um, what is that stage like when you land on a field and now, okay, I'm in the thick of it. I'm either going to language school or I've got a tutor. Uh, what is that like when you're, you're, learning the language and fully immersed or at least mostly immersed in it. What, what is that like for someone who's never learned a foreign language? Oh, it's awful. <laughs> and, and it's awesome. <laughs> at the same time. Yeah. Um, you know, you have to get a few mindsets right before you go into it. You have to know that you're going to look like an idiot. You're going to sound like a kindergartner. <laughs> uh, you're going to mess up. People are going to laugh at you. If you can get all those things right in your mind ahead of time and say, no matter what, I'm going to talk a lot, mm. doesn't matter how dumb I sound. Mm-hmm. If you can get that, then you'll do better with it. But it's overwhelming. Mm. If you go into a country and you can't understand what's going on around you, uh, you go into a country like like a lot of Asian countries and you get into a market where there's you know 10,000 people and lots of street noise and everything's going on. Yeah, it's overwhelming. Mm-hmm. It'll drive you crazy those first few months. I remember you telling me at one point in a private conversation that uh, there w- there's a point where you feel like you don't speak any language. It's like, mm-hmm. I-, I can't even speak English right now. My, my mind is just mush. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I went through it. My wife experienced it too, where there was a point where I, you, that new language is starting to click. Mm-hmm. And it, you're getting pieces to make sense. But then all of a sudden, I couldn't get words out in English. <laughs> Uh, I would substitute the few words I was really getting down in my new language. And yeah. <laughs> How do you push through something like that? Just even emotionally. It, yeah. It, it's, it's hard. It's weird because you go, this is my, this is my heart language. Why can't I communicate? Why can't I speak to anybody? Mm-hmm. Can't even tell my wife what I'm trying to say. <laughs> uh, you know, I think, I think a big part of that, how do you push through again, uh, it starts with a right mindset. If you get, if you want to be a missionary, I think you need to get training in mm-hmm. in what to expect. That's good, right? Because Jesus was 
for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, meaning he was looking at the past that he knew there'd be some struggles, but the joy came after that. Mm. And I look at language learning and a lot of, you know, the first kind of six months of missions like that. If you don't expect to cross and don't anticipate joy to come after that, then you're going to have a hard time. Mm. So really right. it's, it's just a part of counting the cost of missions. It's, it should be lumped in there, the language learning. Yeah, absolutely. It's just going to be a cost and we just got to suck it up and, and, uh, and die to ourselves and, and do it. Yeah. And it sounds like you were saying too, there's even this sense of, uh, uh, you got to get over your pride. You're going to sound like a kindergartner. People are going to laugh at you. And so if you can get over that on the front end, because you know, we're, we're funny people. We all have a sense of pride at some level. Nobody wants to sound dumb. But you're going to. It's just, it's it's inevitable. Oh, yeah. So we just need to get over that before we go. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I, I met a lady. Here's a, a quick example of that. On the on the side of the road, she had a kid in her lap that was probably nine or ten years old. She was begging. And I went, I talked to her and I prayed with her. And anyway, I went back to share the story with uh, my language teacher and some friends. And while I was sharing that story, instead of saying she had a kid in her lap, I said she had a kid in her pocket. <laughs> I mixed up those two words. Yeah. And they're just looking at me like I'm crazy. And I'm just keep telling this story. I'm like, yeah, like he's like nine years old. She's <laughs> nine year old in her pocket. And uh, I didn't put it together until afterward. They're like, uh, in her pocket? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then of course you're red faced and you're like, oh man, right. no, in her lap. But you, you got to laugh at it. Yeah. You know? Which could even be more, uh, embarrassing or frustrating what have you like if, if you're preaching or something and like sure. you you miss you know like uh jeff has told me before there's some words in albanian where there's the only difference is even really spelling it's inflection and yeah. then you're preaching and you're into something serious you say something that's hilarious to them and they break out laughing and you're like what 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 just happened i'm talking about something serious so you just gotta yeah. you gotta die to yourself in that pride area it sounds like yeah absolutely i've had it from the pulpit and yeah on the street <laughs> corner from every place you can you're gonna have that happen oh man that's awesome is there anything uh or or let me ask you this a missionary who's going to the field whether they're on deputation a prospective missionary whatever when they get to the field and they land is there is there a specific way they should go about learning the language like would you advocate that you need to get a tutor or uh like, is there, is there some do's and don'ts about learning the language once you get to the field? Yeah. So I think kind of the big question in language learning is, can we learn a second language? Like we learned our first language, Yeah. meaning can we learn it? Like, like children mm -hmm. learn. Uh, and that's kind of, I think we're all language experts fall on one side or the other of that idea. We should teach new language. Like you're learning as a child. One of the struggles and problems with that is that we're not children anymore. <laughs> right. And you can't unlearn all the stuff I already know about my heart language, my mm -hmm. first language. Yeah. There's no way to not compare against what I know. Yeah, because the, the whole issue is don't translate in your head. Well, yeah. at the beginning, I have to because I don't know anything else, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, and, okay, so what do you, so what do I recommend? Uh, there's a lot of different methods out there. Mm -hmm. Uh, when I learned Spanish, I was in high school, so it was the typical classroom, uh, rote memorization, verb charts, conjugations, and that's how I learned Spanish. Mm -hmm. And it worked. Uh, when I did Urdu, it was totally different. It was in the culture. It was with a tutor. It was based on what's called the GPA method, 
which is designed around trying to learn like you were a child. So you, you do a lot of listening and you do simple vocabulary up front. Mm-hmm. And it worked. Um, really, both of them worked. I think with language learning, the biggest key may not be the the method you choose, but the mindset that you take into it. Mm-hmm. Because language learning is hard work no matter what method you choose. Mm, sure. Everyone has a preferred maybe learning style. I like to listen or I like to see or whatever it is. I like to dance. I'm going to dance out all my vocabulary words. <laughs> Um, okay, well, well, whatever works for you is great. In fact, what works for you will be best for you. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't say that you should get flashcards. Maybe I love flashcards and you hate them. Mm-hmm. You probably won't do it and you won't learn anything. So do what works for you, but take the mindset that language learning is a full-time job mm-hmm. and it's hard. Sure. And you already kind of met, mentioned this, but also as a part of like the dues of, so you need to have some sort of formal training once you get to the field, but you mentioned also practice, practice mm-hmm. as much as you can. Yeah. Why, why yeah, is that for, important? Yeah. So, okay. There's two things that you brought up. A lot of language experts would say that you need about a thousand hours of structured, supervised, um, host language led, instruction. So I get a native speaker. So we, I said we had a tutor and we did, we spent about a thousand hours specifically with the tutor Dang. on the, and then the other side of that too, is the practice side. And, you know, generally you have this number that's out there to become an expert in everything that says you need 10,000 hours of practice. Mm-hmm. And you do, you need to get out and you just need to talk a lot. And so that's the other side. You do need specific instruction Uh, You need someone that can guide you through it. And you need the opportunity to have a lot of conversation Mm -hmm. and to go out and to talk and put in a lot of hours. Mm, That's good. So is there, okay, let's talk about a prospective missionary who maybe they're not on deputation, but like they've talked to their pastor and they're, they're interested in missions work and, and that's what, yeah, they're training, they're discipling, whatever they they're on that path. Is there, maybe they've already decided or there's a open door an opportunity in a country and like, like a, a language as general or as broad used as, as Spanish. It's like, I'm probably going to go to a Spanish speaking culture, what have you. Is there anything they can do on the front end while they're still here to begin learning that language without picking up bad habits or errors? Because that is what you hear a lot. Like, well, you don't want to do too much here because if you learn to speak an American version of that language, it's going to hurt you to unlearn those bad habits. But is there, is there good steps they can take today? Yeah. I think the first thing that you would want to do is do a lot of listening Mm. and that's hard for missionaries. (laughs) <laughs> you know sure because we want to talk mm-hmm. and that's that's our job is to talk sure. um so and you know in most other languages you go to you're going to have different sounds or you're going to have inflections or you're going to have um ways that you create sound that don't exist in english uh, there is a, a big advantage to tuning your ear to hearing the the rhythms the cadence of a language some of those different sounds without ever trying to mimic them and that stems from the way that we learn our first languages. Babies don't make sounds for a really long time, mm. but they're listening and they're picking up all of that, right? Mm. So, uh, yeah, you can you can listen a lot. And if you can listen to things that are produced in that country you're going to, then you're hearing people with that specific dialect using their specific words. You won't have any clue what it means, but you're hearing <laughs> that. 
That's right? yeah, that is good. We uh, so we're going to Hungary this year, but we've been serving there on trips since like 2014. And there there came a point where we realized that like we think God is sending us here like several years out. And so every year we'd go, we'd pick up a little bit more just because you're there. And and mm-hmm. I would intentionally like, okay, this year I'm going to focus on numbers and I'm going to have kids teach me how to count and tell time. You know, so that's cool mm-hmm. because it's kind of a mini immersion. Uh, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like I'm going for a week and I'm going to immerse myself. But, you know, okay, that's that's a temporary thing. Um, yeah. So what I tried to do, I, I read a book that I don't know if I recommend it or not. I it, It's a book that's called Fluent Forever. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it's, it's not written. If anyone's listening and you buy it, listen, I, it's not written by a Christian. It's not written by a missionary. It's written by a guy who's even, he speaks kind of crassly. Sometimes there's some inappropriate words in there or verbiage, if I could say it that way, but it's really interesting because he spends the first part of it talking about what you were just saying, the, the science of language learning and mm-hmm. why do kids learn languages so well? And he said, well, kids learn language as well because they spend two or three years just listening and they've got the time to, and you don't have the time to not do anything but listen. And so there's some pros and cons. Um, but he he heavily suggests the flashcard thing in vocabulary learning. And so, you know, flashcards can can work well in learning vocabulary, but maybe not as much. Um, I, it's called a, a man, an SRS system. I can't remember exactly what that stands for. Basic repetition. There it is. And it doesn't yeah, even have to be physical flashcards. There's apps for that, too. Yeah. If there's one thing that we know for sure works, it's actually spaced repetition. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And you can do that with or without flashcards. The idea of spaced repetition, it, it almost sounds too simple. It just means that you need to revisit the things that you have learned. Mm-hmm. So you right, learn it right you before you forget it. Before you forget it. Yeah. 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 Actually, the, you know, the goal of spaced repetition is to flatten the curve. <laughs> it is. To it's, extend it. Yeah, it's based on the idea that you have a forgetting curve. So over time, uh, you forget things, you know, mm-hmm. at a faster rate. The farther you get away from when you learn them. Sure. The goal with spaced repetition is that you do your first review at that same time when you would start to fall off on that curve, mm. which so which then the extends curve. the new curve a little bit longer, and then yeah, you know, so on and so forth. Exactly. Yeah. And so what he does a really good job in this book, and it's an interesting read if you're listening and you can get over the fact that it's not by a Christian. He speaks a little crassly um, because he goes into uh, using space repetition system. And there's an app. I actually have it on my phone. It's called Anki. It's spelled A-N-K-I. And it's mm-hmm. not made for language learning. It's just a space repetition system flashcard app. And you make your own flashcards. And so what I kind of I, I say this as someone who's not fluent in a second language, <laughs> but uh, you can tell me if this is good or bad, I guess. What I wanted to do was learn as much vocabulary as I can. And then when I get to the field, maybe that'll give me just a bit of a jump start. I'm not going to work on grammar and conjugations because I'll, I'll let the native speakers teach me that. But in 2020, you can find recordings by native speakers who speak even the most of obscure languages, uh, pronouncing them. And you can learn how to pronounce the, the alphabet. Um, there's this thing called like the IPA. I think it's it's like international phonetic or pronunciation alphabet um, that gives you sounds and stuff. And, and you really can make a lot of headway. And so I've just been working on vocabulary through a flashcard app. And, and I don't know now, I guess it's an experiment, James. I, I don't know how much it'll help me once I get there, but the hope was that I can at least jumpstart the thing a little bit. So it doesn't take two years. Maybe it takes a year and a half or, or something like that. No, I think you're brilliant, Kale. 
Oh, well, thank you. You're, you're a brilliant young man. <laughs> and if not, at least your heart's in the right place. You're working hard already. Well, that's already. the hope, right? <laughs> the intention, right? <laughs> you know, okay, so when I was there learning Urdu, uh, I mm -hmm. used the same method. I, I'm using technology is great. Combine that with what we know about uh, spaced repetition. I, every day at the end of our tutoring time, my language teacher would record a dictionary for me of all the new vocabulary we came up with. Oh, wow. And I would put that into my flashcard. Mm -hmm. So I would create a flashcard that had the image. Mm -hmm. And then when I clicked it, it would speak it to me by a native speaker. Yeah. Yes. So absolutely. I'm having to read it. It didn't, it didn't, you know, reading is a lot less important than speaking up front. You got to learn how to speak. Mm -hmm. Ultimately we have to learn how to read. Mm -hmm. um, but you want to be able to speak. So I would see an image and then I would hear it in the native language. And that also helps to take away that translation step uh, where you, you know, you see a word and then you say the word and right. you like, right. translate it. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that's something you can do. And you go to Hungary next, you go with a goal and you say, hey, I need you to record all of these words for me. Mm -hmm. And then you have them and then you just create your flashcards and then you, you SRS them. Yeah. And you know what? There's a there's a really cool website. Um, I think it's called Forvo. Um, if you guys can Google it and check it out. Um, but it's like it's where literally people who speak different languages just record vocabulary words. And mm -hmm. so like if you want to take the time and listen, I'm just saying like missions is work. And so if you're on deputation or not on deputation, you just want to start doing something. You could make these flashcards. Make sure mm -hmm. you have the right translations and then get on. I think it's Forvo and, and get native speakers recording the words. And man, I tell you what, James, I started it just because like, well, I don't know if this is going to work, but let's give it a try. And uh, so I, you know, I was doing the flashcards for a couple weeks and we were in uh, in January. We, we spent a month in the Kansas City area and uh, I think we, we were living with um, uh, with Kenny Morgan and his family for like three yeah. weeks. And, uh, and they're awesome. And it was cold. It's January. And so I'm doing, you know, this SRS app I was doing, it had me doing it for like maybe 20 to 30 minutes every day. Like before I went to bed, I would just zap through the vocab, you know, mm -hmm. review some old ones, get some new ones every day. And I'm like, I don't know if this is working. And I'm, I'm at the gas pump and, uh, it's cold and I shiver and I go, Ugh, he dig. And I was like, wait a second, what the crap was that? And I'm like, I think that's a Hungarian word, but I don't even know if I know what that means. It just, it popped into my head. I kid you not. Mm -hmm. And so I went back in the car and I'm like kind of laughing and I get my phone out. I'm like, if this is even the word, I'm going to lose it. My wife's like, what are you talking about? And I Google it, you know, do the Google translate. And mm -hmm. sure enough, hideg means cold in Hungarian. And it was just neat to see how oh, this thing works. You can actually get to the yeah. point. If you've never spoken another language, I don't speak a second language. This is my first time learning. You can get to the point where it literally will just pop into your head and you're not translating. And that was a cool little glimpse that just, uh, it gave me enough to want to push forward and put the work in, you know? Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's absolutely necessary. Um, everything you were just talking about. And I would say this as well. There's, I think, another useful technique mm -hmm. um, in language learning. It just—it's really the same idea. But do you know who the most effective language teacher in the world is? Mm -mm. It's Tom Cruise. Oh well, of course. <laughs> right. Every person I've met around the world who who's picked up English as a second language, I ask them how they learn it. They go Hollywood. <laughs> so if there is any kind of media that comes out, just take advantage of that. Mm. People, Tom Cruise is teaching people English all over the world. <laughs> you know, it is funny. The kids under. 2021 in Hungary that speak English well. I'm like, how, how'd you learn that? Oh, I play a lot of video games. I watch YouTube. 
yeah. listen to music. I'm like, you you learned English just on YouTube? Mm-hmm. And then I feel kind of lazy and like a, you know, a rich foreigner who doesn't put any work in. But, <laughs> right. <laughs> but no, that's you know, awesome. In Spanish, they have these really, really cheesy dramas, you know? Mm-hmm. That everyone's maybe kind of generally familiar with, but they're great for language learning. They're so cheesy. They're overacted and overanimated oh. that you see what they're saying. Like you get it. You can p- pick up the context. Yeah. Even if you have no idea what's going on, you listen to that enough and you start figuring some stuff out. That's awesome. Is there yeah. any strategy? And maybe this is a simple answer. I don't know. Is, is there any strategy in language learning when you're going to a country that speaks many languages or has many dialects? Like is, is Pakistan, is that the only language they speak or is there a lot? Uh, there are about 300 languages in Pakistan. <laughs> so what do you do as the missionary when you go to a country that has a lot of dialects and languages like that, uh, which one do you learn? What, what What's the process there? So Urdu is the most universal in Pakistan. So while not everyone speaks that at their heart language, they probably learned it in school. Most schools are taught in that language. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, the area where we were, there were a lot of Urdu speakers. How? However, some of our teammates also in country had learned another or a third language as well. Oh, wow. Yeah. So really, you should just go with the the language that initially you can reach the most people or talk to the most people. Yeah, that was very pragmatic for me. That makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. Yeah. And then like if you learn, you know, after you're fluent in that, you learn, well, if I, if I could learn this language or dialect, that would open up more opportunities than go for it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's awesome. Um, do you... As we're getting ready to wrap this up, this has been an awesome conversation, by the way. Um, do you have any advice for – so we've talked a lot about missionaries, the importance of learning a language. If you're a missionary who hasn't yet made the effort to learn the language, you should – we think you should reconsider. Um, but let's just talk to the regular church member um, who you know hasn't decided to go to the mission, a foreign mission field or, or isn't going to a foreign mission field. Uh, should they consider learning a new language if they think that there's foreigners in their area that they could reach out to and minister to? No, absolutely not. <laughs> Americans should only speak English. It's a loaded question, huh? <laughs> right? Uh, you know, on a worldwide scale, we're, we are kind of embarrassing being monolingual sure. generally across the country. And a lot of the world isn't. Yeah. You don't feel that ignorance until you go to another country, by the way. And you're talking to someone at a hotel check-in and they're rifling through their Rolodex of languages to find yours. And then you're just mm-hmm. like, I'm dumb. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I do think there's a, a lot of advantage and value of, of learning languages, even if you think you're staying in, in the United States. If you're in Kansas City, you should uh, learn Spanish. There's you know, Somali. We have a large Somali population now that... Arabic is on the rise. There's a number of languages in various parts of the country that, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, don't be a lazy Christian. Amen. What is your plan to build a great commission? Maybe God is keeping you at your local church, but there are uh, all the ethnic groups are coming to uh, the U.S. as well. Yeah. You know, we talked a little bit at the beginning about unreached people groups, mm-hmm. and there's about 6,000 of them in the world. Uh, there's a ton. I think that's right. Maybe mm-hmm. someone should double check that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but we have about 400 of these unreached people groups in the United States right now because wow. they're coming to our university systems. Hmm. 
And like, okay, so you were uh, you were in Monmouth, Illinois when I when I was there um, yeah. at uh, Mike Blake's church, and uh, it, I believe Todd is his name, the pastor there, uh, one of the mm-hmm. pastors there. Um, they have all of a sudden, there's, Monmouth is a small town, like I think it's smaller than New Philly, and uh, mm-hmm. they had a bunch of foreigners come from a French speaking country in Africa. I can't remember which one. Congo. The Congo. And yeah. so they all of a sudden, over the last several years, they have all these immigrants coming to work and they're from the Congo and they all speak French. Well, I mean, God's giving you an opportunity. What I mean, is it that big of a sacrifice to stay in your luxurious American lifestyle and maybe learn a little bit of French so that you could reach people who God's bringing right to your doorstep? I mean, I, I love the ministry they're doing there. It's awesome. Amen. I think, yeah, that's it. And I, I, it probably can be hard. I don't know if you can even speak to this at all, but like, so if we're going to another country, even if you're dabbling on the front end, you're going to be immersed in it. And immersion is always going to be a benefactor to you in learning a new language. I don't know. Is there any advice to someone who's staying here in America? They want to learn another language for ministering, um, but, but they're not going to be immersed in it. Uh, yeah. So, you know, it just goes back to those things we talked about already. Know how you like to learn, use some space repetition. Uh, generally if you're, no matter what culture you're in, immersed or not, do bite-sized chunks and give your brain breaks. Mm -hmm. Like you can't, you can't do a six hour language session. Your brain just doesn't work that way. You're not going to learn a language overnight, even if you work really hard at it. No, you're not. Uh, and sleep. Maybe this is a real important one for missionaries because we want to be on the go. But um, when you understand how the brain works, you have to have sleep in order to remember things. Hmm. Uh, Get a lot of sleep. Take naps. Mm -hmm. Your supporters might think that's an odd thing when you write home and you say, I'm taking a nap, a two-hour nap every afternoon. (laughs) But you know what? Science says you will learn the language faster if you do it. Oh, that's awesome. That's a really good pointer. And you know, there's a lot of, I feel like today in, in 2020, in the last like, I don't know, five, six years, there's so many apps out there, free, uh, paid apps, even that are, that are not that expensive, um, where you can learn again, I'm, I'm speaking more about vocabulary because if you're going to learn the intricacies of verb conjugation and stuff, you're going to just need to talk to people. And you're mm-hmm. going to need to practice, but you can learn vocabulary for free or cheap with mm-hmm. apps like Duolingo and Drops is another good one. D-R-O-P-S mm-hmm. that is minimal in cost and is really good in, in that it's kind of SRS, but they give you pictures with the pronunciations from a native speaker. Yeah, um, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, get out there. There's another one. I don't know if you've ever tried. It's called italki. Uh, have you ever heard of that? No, I haven't. It's like a, it's got a social media aspect to it. And I think you can just connect with other people who have the apps that are native speakers. And like, you know, if you want to learn Spanish, you can find Spanish speakers and you could probably even hire tutors on it, but I haven't messed with it. But if you're out there and you're thinking about it, man, do some Googling, put the work in because language, it's important. Like James was saying, uh, man, James, thanks so much. This has been an awesome conversation. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you, Gail. And there you go from the mouth of a missionary who's learned several languages language is key to the culture of a people and so language acquisition should be a very high priority on your list if you're going to be a missionary or if you're going to uh, another place to minister or even if you're just trying to minister to other people in your city that don't speak your language uh man could i challenge you to consider uh even though you're not changing your address for the gospel um 
maybe you could consider that you could be a missionary right where you're at by making some of those same sacrifices to learn a language so that you could reach out and learn the culture of, of people who are in your backyard who have moved here for whatever reason, whether it be jobs or family or whatever, they've moved to your area. Um, why not make some sacrifices and have some conversations and try to meet people where they're at. After all, that's all international missions is. It's just, I'm changing my address to go to them. But man, a lot of the world has changed their address and come to us and perhaps we can meet them where they're at. Um, so I hope you guys learned a lot and were encouraged and edified, but what, by what James had to say, not only about language learning, but the 1040 window and Muslim ministry, a lot of good stuff. This was a really rich episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. We will see you back next week. Thank you guys for listening. God bless. Thanks for listening. Please rate and subscribe and share us on social media. Also, please make sure to check out our other podcast, Theology Roundtable, at theologyroundtable.com.